Section eight of London Labour and the London Poor by Henry Mayhew, Volume one. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Peter Yearsley. The Street Folk, Part eight. The Life of a Coster Lad. One lad that I spoke to gave me as much of his history as he could remember. He was a tall, stout boy about sixteen years old, with a face utterly vacant. His two heavy, lead-coloured eyes stared unmeaningly at me, and beyond a constant anxiety to keep his front lock curled on his cheek, he did not exhibit the slightest trace of feeling. He sank into his seat heavily and of a heap, and when once settled down he remained motionless, with his mouth open and his hands on his knees, almost as if paralysed. He was dressed in all the slang beauty of his class, with a bright red handkerchief and unexceptionable boots. My father, he told me in a thick, unimpassioned voice, was a wagoner and worked the country roads. There was two on us at home with mother, and we used to play along with the boys of our court in Golding Lane at Buttons and Marbles. I recollect nothing more than this, only the big boys used to cheat like bricks and thump us if we grumbled. That's all I recollect of my infancy, as you calls it. Father, I've heard tell, died when I was three and brother only a year old. It was worse luck for us. Mother was so easy with us. I once went to school for a couple of weeks, but the cove used to fetch me a wipe over the knuckles with his stick, and as I wasn't going to stand that there, why, you see, I ain't no great scholard. We did as we liked with Mother. She was so precious easy, and I never learned anything but playing buttons and making leaden bounces, that's all. Note, here the youth laughed slightly. End note. Mother used to be up and out very early, washing in families, anything for a living. She was a good mother to us. We was left at home with the key of the room and some bread and butter for dinner. Afore she got into work, and it was a goodish long time, we was shocking hard up, and she pawned nigh everything. Sometimes, when we hadn't no grub at all, the other lads, perhaps, would give us some of their bread and butter, but often our stomachs used to ache with the hunger, and we would cry when we was very far gone. She used to be at work from six in the morning till ten o'clock at night, which was a long time for a child's belly to hold out again, and when it was dark we would go and lie down on the bed and try to sleep until she came home with the food. I was eight year old then. A man as knowed mother said to her, Your boy's got nothing to do. Let him come along with me and yarn a few halfpence. And so I became a coster. He gave me fourpence a morning and my breakfast. I worked with him about three year until I learned the markets, and then I and brother got baskets of our own and used to keep mother. One day with another, the two on us together could make two shillings and sixpence by selling greens of a morning and going round to the publics with nuts of an evening till about ten o'clock at night. Mother used to have a bit of fried meat or a stew ready for us when we got home, and by using up the stock as we couldn't sell, we used to manage pretty tidy. When I was fourteen I took up with the girl. She lived in the same house as we did, and I used to walk out of a night with her and give her half pints of beer at the publics. She were about thirteen and used to dress very nice, though she weren't above middling pretty. Now I'm working for another man as gives me a shilling a week, victuals, washing, and lodging, just as if I was one of the family. 
on a sunday night i goes out sellin and all our yarns i keeps as for going to church why i can't afford it besides to tell the truth i don't like it well enough plays too ain't in my line much i'd sooner go to a dance it's more livelier the penny gaffs is rather more in my style the songs are out and out and makes our gals laugh the smuttier the better i thinks bless you the gals likes it as much as we do if we lads ever has a quarrel why we fights for it if i was to let a cove off once he'd do it again but i never give a lad a chance so long as i can get anigh him i never heard about christianity but if a cove was to fetch me a lick of the head i'd give it him again whether he was a big un or a little un i'd precious soon see a henemy of mine shot afore i'd forgive him where's the use do i understand what behaving to your neighbour is in course i do if a feller as lived next me wanted a basket of mine as i wasn't using why he might have it if i was working it though i'd see him further i can understand that all as lives in a court is neighbours but as for policemen they're nothing to me and i should like to pay em all off well now i never heard about this here creation you speaks about in course god almighty made the world and the poor bricklayers labourers built the houses afterwards that's my opinion but i can't say for i've never been in no schools only always hard at work and knows nothing about it i've heard a little about our saviour they seem to say he were a goodish kind of man but if he says as how a cove to forgive a feller as hits you i should say he knowed nothing about it in course the gals the lads goes and lives with thinks our walloping em very cruel of us but we don't why don't we why because we don't before father died i used sometimes to say my prayers but after that mother was too busy getting a living to mind about my praying yes i knows in the lord's prayer they says forgive us our trespasses as we forgives them as trespasses again us it's a very good thing in course but no costers can't do it of the penny gaff in many of the thoroughfares of london there are shops which have been turned into a kind of temporary theatre admission one penny where dancing and singing take place every night rude pictures of the performers are arranged outside to give the front a gaudy and attractive look and at night-time coloured lamps and transparencies are displayed to draw an audience these places are called by the costers penny gaffs and on a monday night as many as six performances will take place each one having its two hundred visitors it is impossible to contemplate the ignorance and immorality of so numerous a class as that of the costermongers without wishing to discover the cause of their degradation let any one curious on this point visit one of these penny shows and he will wonder that any trace of virtue and honesty should remain among the people here the stage instead of being the means for illustrating a moral precept is turned into a platform to teach the cruelest debauchery the audience is usually composed of children so young that these dens become the schoolrooms where the guiding morals of a life are picked up and so precocious are the little things that the girl of nine will from constant attendance at such places have learnt to understand the filthiest sayings and laugh at them as loudly as the grown-up lads around her what notions can the young female form of marriage and chastity when the penny theatre rings with applause 
at the performance of a scene whose sole point turns upon the pantomime imitation of the unrestrained indulgence of the most corrupt appetites of our nature how can the lad learn to check his hot passions and think honesty and virtue admirable when the shouts around him impart a glory to a descriptive song so painfully corrupt that it can only have been made tolerable by the most habitual excess the men who preside over these infamous places know too well the failings of their audiences they know that these poor children require no nicely turned joke to make the evening pass merrily and that the filth they utter needs no double meaning to veil its obscenity the show that will provide the most unrestrained debauchery will have the most crowded benches and to gain this point things are acted and spoken that it is criminal even to allude to not wishing to believe in the description which some of the more intelligent of the costermongers had given of these places it was thought better to visit one of them so that all exaggeration might be avoided one of the least offensive of the exhibitions was fixed upon the penny gaff chosen was situated in a broad street near smithfield and for a great distance off the jingling sound of music was heard and the gaslight streamed out into the thick night air as from a dark lantern glittering on the windows of the houses opposite and lighting up the faces of the mob in the road as on an illumination night the front of a large shop had been entirely removed and the entrance was decorated with paintings of the comic singers in their most humorous attitudes on a table against the wall was perched the band playing what the costers call dancing tunes with great effect for the hole at the money-taker's box was blocked up with hands tendering the penny the crowd without was so numerous that a policeman was in attendance to preserve order and push the boys off the pavement the music having the effect of drawing them insensibly towards the festooned green baize curtain the shop itself had been turned into a waiting-room and was crowded even to the top of the stairs leading to the gallery on the first floor the ceiling of this lobby was painted blue and spotted with whitewashed clouds to represent the heavens the boards of the trap-door and the laths that showed through the holes in the plaster being all of the same colour a notice was here posted over the canvas door leading into the theatre to the effect that ladies and gentlemen to the front places must pay tuppence the visitors with a few exceptions were all boys and girls whose ages seemed to vary from eight to twenty years some of the girls though their figures showed them to be mere children were dressed in showy cotton velvet polkas and wore dowdy feathers in their crushed bonnets they stood laughing and joking with the lads in an unconcerned impudent manner that was almost appalling some of them when tired of waiting chose their partners and commenced dancing grotesquely to the admiration of the lookers-on who expressed their approbation in obscene terms that far from disgusting the poor little women were received as compliments and acknowledged with smiles and coarse repartees the boys clustered together smoking their pipes and laughing at each other's anecdotes or else jingling halfpennies in time with the tune while they whistled an accompaniment to it presently one of the performers with a gilt crown on his well-greased locks descended from the staircase 
his fleshings covered by a dingy dressing-gown, and mixed with the mob, shaking hands with old acquaintances. The comic singer, too, made his appearance among the throng, the huge bow to his cravat, which nearly covered his waistcoat, and the red end to his nose, exciting neither merriment nor surprise. To discover the kind of entertainment, a lad near me and my companion was asked if there was any flash dancing. With a knowing wink, the boy answered, Lots! Show their legs and all prime! And immediately the boy followed up his information by a request for a Yenep to get a tib of Ockerbot. After waiting in the lobby some considerable time, the performance inside was concluded, and the audience came pouring out through the canvas door. As they had to pass singly, I noticed them particularly. Above three-fourths of them were women and girls, the rest consisting chiefly of mere boys, for out of about two hundred persons I counted only eighteen men. Forward they came, bringing an overpowering stench with them, laughing and yelling as they pushed their way through the waiting-room. One woman, carrying a sickly child, with a bulging forehead, was reeling drunk, the saliva running down her mouth as she stared about her with a heavy fixed eye. Two boys were pushing her from side to side, while the poor infant slept, breathing heavily as if stupefied, through the din. Lads jumping on girls' shoulders, and girls laughing hysterically from being tickled by the youths behind them, everyone shouting and jumping presented a mad scene of frightful enjoyment. When these had left, a rush for places by those in waiting began, that set at defiance the blows and strugglings of a lady in spangles, who endeavoured to preserve order and take the checks. As time was a great object with the proprietor, the entertainment within began directly the first seat was taken, so that the lads without, rendered furious by the rattling of the piano within, made the canvas partition bulge in and out with the strugglings of those seeking admission, like a sail in a flagging wind. To form the theatre, the first floor had been removed, the whitewashed beams, however, still stretched from wall to wall. The lower room had evidently been the warehouse, while the upper apartment had been the sitting-room, for the paper was still on the walls. A gallery with a canvas front had been hurriedly built up, and it was so fragile that the boards bent under the weight of those above. The bricks in the warehouse were smeared over with red paint, and had a few black curtains daubed upon them. The Costa youths require no very great scenic embellishment, and indeed the stage, which was about eight feet square, could admit of none. Two jets of gas, like those outside a butcher's shop, were placed on each side of the proscenium, and proved very handy for the gentleman whose pipes required lighting. The band inside the theatre could not compare with the band without. An old grand piano, whose canvas-covered top extended the entire length of the stage, sent forth its wiry notes, under the beringed fingers of a Professor Wilkinsini, while another professional, with his head resting on his violin, played vigorously as he stared unconcernedly at the noisy audience. Singing and dancing formed the whole of the hour's performance, and of the two the singing was preferred. A young girl of about fourteen years of age danced with more energy than grace, and seemed to be well known to the spectators, who cheered her on by her Christian name. When the dance was concluded, 
the proprietor of the establishment threw down a penny from the gallery in the hopes that others might be moved to similar acts of generosity but no one followed up the offering as the young lady hunted after the money and departed the comic singer in a battered hat and the huge bow to his cravat was received with deafening shouts several songs were named by the costers but the funny gentleman merely requested them to hold their jaws and putting on a knowing look sang a song the whole point of which consisted in the mere utterance of some filthy word at the end of each stanza nothing however could have been more successful the lads stamped their feet with delight the girls screamed with enjoyment once or twice a young shrill laugh would anticipate the fun as if the words were well known or the boys would forestall the point by shouting it out before the proper time when the song was ended the house was in a delirium of applause the canvas front to the gallery was beaten with sticks drum-like and sent down showers of white powder on the heads in the pit another song followed and the actor knowing on what his success depended lost no opportunity of increasing his laurels the most obscene thoughts the most disgusting scenes were coolly described making a poor child near me wipe away the tears that rolled down her eyes with the enjoyment of the poison there were three or four of these songs sung in the course of the evening each one being encored and then changed one written about pineapple rock was the grand treat of the night and offered greater scope to the rhyming powers of the author than of any of the others in this not a single chance had been missed ingenuity had been exerted to its utmost lest an obscene thought should be passed by and it was absolutely awful to behold the relish with which the young ones jumped to the hideous meaning of the verses there was one scene yet to come that was perfect in its wickedness a ballet began between a man dressed up as a woman and a country clown the most disgusting attitudes were struck the most immoral acts represented without one dissenting voice if there had been any feat of agility any grimacing or in fact anything with which the laughter of the uneducated classes is usually associated the applause might have been accounted for but here were two ruffians degrading themselves each time they stirred a limb and forcing into the brains of the childish audience before them thoughts that must embitter a lifetime and descend from father to child like some bodily infirmity when i had left i spoke to a better-class costermonger on this subject well sir it is frightful he said but the boys will have their amusements if their amusements is bad they don't care they only wants to laugh and this here kind of work does it give em better singing and better dancing and they'd go if the price was as cheap as this is i've seen when a decent concert was given at a penny as many as four thousand costers present behaving themselves as quietly and decently as possible their wives and children was with them and no audience was better conducted it's all stuff talking about them preferring this sort of thing give em good things at the same price and i know they'll like the good better than the bad my own experience with this neglected class goes to prove that if we would really lift them out of the moral mire in which they are wallowing the first step must be to provide them with wholesome amusements 
the misfortune however is that when we seek to elevate the character of the people we give them such mere dry abstract truths and dogmas to digest that the uneducated mind turns with abhorrence from them we forget how we ourselves were originally won by our emotions to the consideration of such subjects we do not remember how our own tastes have been formed nor do we in our zeal stay to reflect how the tastes of a people generally are created and consequently we cannot perceive that a habit of enjoying any matter whatsoever can only be induced in the mind by linking with it some aesthetic affection the heart is the mainspring of the intellect and the feelings the real educers and educators of the thoughts as games with the young destroy the fatigue of muscular exercise so do the sympathies stir the mind to action without any sense of effort it is because serious people generally object to enlist the emotions in the education of the poor and look upon the delight which arises in the mind from the mere perception of the beauty of sound motion form and colour or from the apt association of harmonious or incongruous ideas or from the sympathetic operation of the affections it is because i say the zealous portion of society look upon these matters as vanity that the amusements of the working classes are left to venal traders to provide hence in the low-priced entertainments which necessarily appeal to the poorer and therefore to the less educated of the people the proprietors instead of trying to develop in them the purer sources of delight seek only to gratify their audience in the coarsest manner by appealing to their most brutal appetites and thus the emotions which the great architect of the human mind gave us as the means of quickening our imaginations and refining our sentiments are made the instruments of crushing every operation of the intellect and debasing our natures it is idle and unfeeling to believe that the great majority of a people whose days are passed in excessive toil and whose homes are mostly of an uninviting character will forego all amusements and consent to pass their evenings by their no firesides reading tracts or singing hymns it is folly to fancy that the mind spent with the irksomeness of compelled labour and depressed perhaps with the struggle to live by that labour after all will not when the work is over seek out some place where at least it can forget its troubles or fatigues in the temporary pleasure begotten by some mental or physical stimulant it is because we exact too much of the poor because we as it were strive to make true knowledge and true beauty as forbidding as possible to the uneducated and unrefined that they fly to their penny gaffs their tuppenny hops their beer shops and their gambling grounds for pleasures which we deny them and which we in our arrogance believe it is possible for them to do without the experiment so successfully tried at liverpool of furnishing music of an enlivening and yet elevating character at the same price as the concerts of the lowest grade shows that the people may be one to delight in beauty instead of bestiality and teaches us again that it is our fault to allow them to be as they are and not theirs to remain so all men are compound animals with many inlets of pleasure to their brains and if one avenue be closed against them 
why it but forces them to seek delight through another so far from the perception of beauty inducing habits of gross enjoyment as serious people generally imagine a moment's reflection will tell us that these very habits are only the necessary consequences of the non-development of the aesthetic faculty for the two assuredly cannot coexist to cultivate the sense of the beautiful is necessarily to inculcate a detestation of the sensual moreover it is impossible for the mind to be accustomed to the contemplation of what is admirable without continually mounting to higher and higher forms of it from the beauty of nature to that of thought from thought to feeling from feeling to action and lastly to the fountain of all goodness the great munificent creator of the seas the mountains and the flowers the stars the sunshine and the rainbow the fancy the reason the love and the heroism of man and womankind the instincts of the beasts the glory of the angels and the mercy of christ of the costa girls the costermongers taken as a body entertain the most imperfect idea of the sanctity of marriage to their undeveloped minds it merely consists in the fact of a man and woman living together and sharing the gains they may each earn by selling in the street the father and mother of the girl look upon it as a convenient means of shifting the support of their child over to another's exertions and so thoroughly do they believe this to be the end and aim of matrimony that the expense of a church ceremony is considered as a useless waste of money and the new pair are received by their companions as cordially as if every form of law and religion had been complied with the notions of morality among these people agree strangely as i have said with those of many savage tribes indeed it would be curious if it were otherwise they are a part of the nomadia of england neither knowing nor caring for the enjoyments of home the hearth which is so sacred a symbol to all civilized races as being the spot where the virtues of each succeeding generation are taught and encouraged has no charms to them the tap-room is the father's chief abiding-place whilst to the mother the house is only a better kind of tent she is away at the stall or hawking her goods from morning till night while the children are left to play away the day in the court or alley and pick their morals out of the gutter so long as the limbs gain strength the parent cares for nothing else as the young ones grow up their only notions of wrong are formed by what the policeman will permit them to do if we who have known from babyhood the kindly influences of a home require before we are thrust out into the world to get a living for ourselves that our perceptions of good and evil should be quickened and brightened note the same as our perceptions of truth and falsity note, by the experience and counsel of those who are wiser and better than ourselves if indeed it needed a special creation and example to teach the best and strongest of us the law of right how bitterly must the children of the street folk require tuition training and advice when from their very cradles if indeed they ever knew such luxuries they are doomed to be witness in their parents whom they naturally believe to be their superiors habits of life in which passion is the sole rule of action and where every appetite of our animal nature is indulged in 
without the least restraint. I say this much because I am anxious to make others feel, as I do myself, that we are the culpable parties in these matters, that they, poor things, should do as they do is but human nature, but that we should allow them to remain thus destitute of every blessing vouchsafed to ourselves, that we should willingly share what we enjoy with our brethren at the Antipodes, and yet leave those who are nearer, and who therefore should be dearer to us, to want even the commonest moral necessities, is a paradox that gives to the zeal of our Christianity a strong savour of the chicanery of Kant. The costermongers strongly resemble the North American Indians in their conduct to their wives. They can understand that it is the duty of the woman to contribute to the happiness of the man, but cannot feel that there is a reciprocal duty from the man to the woman. The wife is considered as an inexpensive servant, and the disobedience of a wish is punished with blows. She must work early and late, and to the husband must be given the proceeds of her labour. Often when the man is in one of his drunken fits, which sometimes last two or three days continuously, she must, by her sole exertions, find food for herself and him too. To live in peace with him there must be no murmuring, no tiring under work, no fancied cause for jealousy, for if there be, she is either beaten into submission, or cast adrift to begin life again, as another's leavings. The story of one coster girl's life may be taken as a type of the many. When quite young, she is placed out to nurse with some neighbour, the mother, if a fond one, visiting the child at certain periods of the day, for the purpose of feeding it, or sometimes, knowing the round she has to make, having the infant brought to her at certain places to be suckled. As soon as it is old enough to go alone, the court is its playground, the gutter its schoolroom, and under the care of an elder sister, the little one passes the day among children whose mothers, like her own, are too busy out in the streets helping to get the food to be able to mind the family at home. When the girl is strong enough, she in her turn is made to assist the mother by keeping guard over the younger children, or, if there be none, she is lent out to carry about a baby, and so made to add to the family income by gaining her sixpence weekly. Her time is from the earliest years fully occupied. Indeed, her parents cannot afford to keep her without doing and getting something. Very few of the children receive the least education. The parents, I am told, never give their minds to learning, for they say, what's the use of it? That won't yarn a girl a living. Everything is sacrificed, as indeed under the circumstances it must be, in the struggle to live, ay, and to live merely. Mind, heart, and soul are all absorbed in the belly. The rudest form of animal life, physiologists tell us, is simply a locomotive stomach. Verily, it would appear as if our social state had a tendency to make the highest animal sink into the lowest. At about seven years of age, the girls first go into the streets to sell. A shallow basket is given to them, with about two shillings for stock money, and they hawk, according to the time of year, either 
oranges, apples, or violets. Some begin their street education with the sale of watercresses. The money earned by this means is strictly given to the parents. Sometimes, though rarely, a girl who has been unfortunate during the day will not dare to return home at night, and then she will sleep under some dry arch or about some market until the morrow's gains shall ensure her a safe reception and shelter in her father's room. The life of the coster girls is as severe as that of the boys. Between four and five in the morning they have to leave home for the markets, and sell in the streets until about nine. Those that have more kindly parents return then to breakfast, but many are obliged to earn the morning's meal for themselves. After breakfast they generally remain in the streets until about ten o'clock at night, many having nothing during all that time but one meal of bread and butter and coffee, to enable them to support the fatigue of walking from street to street with the heavy basket on their heads. In the course of a day some girls eat as much as a pound of bread, and very seldom get any meat unless it be on a Sunday. There are many poor families that, without the aid of these girls, would be forced into the workhouse. They are generally of an affectionate disposition, and some will perform acts of marvellous heroism to keep together the little home. It is not at all unusual for mere children of fifteen to walk their eight or ten miles a day, carrying a basket of nearly two hundred weight on their heads. A journey to Woolwich and back or to the towns near London, is often undertaken to earn the one shilling and sixpence their parents are anxiously waiting for at home. Very few of these girls are married to the men they afterwards live with. Their courtship is usually a very short one, for, as one told me, the life is such a hard one that a girl is ready to get rid of a little of the labour at any price. The coster lads see the girls at market, and if one of them be pretty, and a boy takes a fancy to her, he will make her bargains for her, and carry her basket home. Sometimes a coster, working his rounds, will feel a liking for a wench selling her goods in the street, and will leave his barrow to go and talk with her. A girl seldom takes up with a lad before she is sixteen, though some of them, when barely fifteen or even fourteen, will pair off. They court for a time, going to raffles and gaffs together, and then the affair is arranged. The girl tells her parents she's going to keep company with so-and-so, packs up what things she has, and goes at once, without a word of remonstrance from either father or mother. A furnished room, at about four shillings a week, is taken, and the young couple begin life. The lad goes out as usual with his barrow, and the girl goes out with her basket, often working harder for her lover than she had done for her parents. They go to market together, and at about nine o'clock her day's selling begins. Very often she will take out with her in the morning what food she requires during the day, and never return home until eleven o'clock at night. The men generally behave very cruelly to the girls they live with. They are as faithful to them as if they were married, but they are jealous in the extreme. To see a man talking to their girl is sufficient to ensure the poor thing a beating. They sometimes ill-treat them horribly, most unmercifully indeed. Nevertheless, the girls say they cannot help loving them still, 
and continue working for them as if they experienced only kindness at their hands some of the men are gentler and more considerate in their treatment of them but by far the larger portion are harsh and merciless often when the saturday night's earnings of the two have been large the man will take the entire money and as soon as the sunday's dinner is over commence drinking hard and continue drunk for two or three days together until the funds are entirely exhausted the women never gamble they say it gives them no excitement they prefer if they have a spare moment in the evening sitting near the fire making up and patching their clothes ah sir said a girl to me a neat gown does a deal with a man he always likes a girl best when everybody else likes her too on a sunday they clean their room for the week and go for a treat if they can persuade their young man to take them out in the afternoon either to chalk farm or battersea fields where there's plenty of life after a girl has once grown accustomed to a street life it is almost impossible to wean her from it the muscular irritability begotten by continued wandering makes her unable to rest for any time in one place and she soon if put to any settled occupation gets to crave for the severe exercise she formerly enjoyed the least restraint will make her sigh after the perfect liberty of the coster's roving life as an instance of this i may relate a fact that has occurred within the last six months a gentleman of high literary repute struck with the heroic strugglings of a coster irish girl to maintain her mother took her to his house with a view of teaching her the duties of a servant at first the transition was a painful one to the poor thing having travelled barefoot through the streets since a mere child the pressure of shoes was intolerable to her and in the evening or whenever a few minutes rest could be obtained the boots were taken off for with them on she could enjoy no ease the perfect change of life and the novelty of being in a new place reconciled her for some time to the loss of her liberty but no sooner did she hear from her friends that sprats were again in the market then as if there were some magical influence in the fish she at once requested to be freed from the confinement and permitted to return to her old calling such is the history of the lower class of girls though this lower class i regret to say constitutes by far the greater portion of the whole still i would not for a moment have it inferred that all are bad there are many young girls getting their living or rather helping to get the living of others in the streets whose goodness considering the temptations and hardships besetting such an occupation approximates to the marvellous as a type of the most prudent class of costa girls i would cite the following narrative received from the lips of a young woman in answer to a series of questions the life of a costa girl i wished to have obtained a statement from the girl whose portrait is here given but she was afraid to give the slightest information about the habits of her companions lest they should recognize her by the engraving and persecute her for the revelations she might make after disappointing me some dozen times i was forced to seek out some other costa girl the one i fixed upon was a fine-grown young woman of eighteen she had a habit of curtsying to every question that was put to her her plaid shawl was tied over the breast 
and her cotton velvet bonnet was crushed in with carrying her basket. She seemed dreadfully puzzled where to put her hands, at one time tucking them under her shawl, warming them at the fire, or measuring the length of her apron, and when she answered a question she invariably addressed the fireplace. Her voice was husky from shouting apples. My mother has been in the streets selling all her lifetime. Her uncle learnt her the markets, and she learnt me. When business grew bad, she said to me, Now you shall take care on the stall, and I'll go and work out charring. The way she learnt me the markets was to judge of the weight of the baskets of apples, and then said she, Always bait em down, almost a half. I always liked the street life very well. That was if I was selling. I've mostly kept a stall myself, but I've known gals as walk about with apples, as have told me that the weight of the baskets is sich that the neck cricks, and when the load is took off, it's just as if you'd a stiff neck, and the head feels as light as a feather. The gals begins working very early at our work. The parents makes them go out when they're almost babies. There's a little gal, I'm sure she ain't more than half-past seven, that stands selling watercresses next my stall. And mother was saying, only look there, how that little one has to get a living afore she almost knows what a penneth means. There's six on us in family, and father and mother makes eight. Father used to do odd jobs with the gas pipes in the streets, and when work was slack, we had very hard times of it. Mother always liked being with us at home, and used to manage to keep us employed out of mischief. She'd give us an old gown to make into pinafores for the children and such like. She's been very good to us, says mother, and so's father. She always liked to hear us read to her whilst she was washing or such like. And then we big ones had to learn the little ones. But when father's work got slack, if she had no employment charring, she'd say, Now I'll go and buy a bushel of apples, and then she'd turn out and get a penny that way. I suppose by sitting at the stall from nine in the morning till the shops shuts up, say ten o'clock at night, I can earn about one shilling and sixpence a day. It's all according to the apples, whether they're good or not what we makes. If I'm unlucky, mother will say, well, I'll go out tomorrow and see what I can do. And if I've done well, she'll say, come, you're a good hand at it. You've done famous. Yes, mother's very fair that way. Ah, there's many a gal I knows whose back has to suffer if she don't sell her stock well. But thank God I never got more than a blowing up. My parents is very fair to me. I dare say there ain't ten out of a hundred gals what's living with men what's been married Church of England fashion. I know plenty myself, but I don't indeed think it right. It seems to me that the gals is fools to be ticed away, but in course they needn't go without they likes. This is why I don't think it's right. Perhaps a man will have a few words with his gal, and he'll say, Oh, I ain't obligated to keep her, and he'll turn her out. And then where's that poor gal to go? Now, there's a gal I knows as came to me no later than this here week, and she had a dreadful swole face, and a awful black eye, and I says, Who's done that? And she says, says she, Why, Jack, just in that way. And then she says, says she, I'm going to take a warrant out tomorrow. Well, he gets the warrant that same night, but she never appears again him, for fear of getting more beating. That don't seem to me like married people ought to be. Besides, if parties is married, they ought to bend to each other, and they won't for certain if they're only living together. A man as is married is obligated to keep his wife if they quarrels or not, and he says to himself, says he, well, I may as well live happy, like. 
but if he can turn a poor gal off as soon as he tires of her he begins to have noises with her and then gets quit of her altogether again the men takes the money of the gals and in course ought to treat em well which they don't this is another reason when the gal is in the family way the lads mostly sends them to the workhouse to lay in and only goes sometimes to take them a bit of tea and sugar but in course married men wouldn't behave in such likes to their poor wives after a quarrel too a lad goes and takes up with another young gal and that isn't pleasant for the first one the first step to ruin is them places of penny gaffs for they hears things there as oughtn't to be said to young gals besides the lads is very insinivating and after leaving them places will give a gal a drop of beer and make her half tipsy and then they makes their arrangements i've often heerd the boys boasting of having ruined gals for all the world as if they was the first noblemen in the land it would be a good thing if these sort of goings-on could be stopped it's half the parents fault for if a gal can't get a living they turns her out into the streets and then what's to become of her i'm sure the gals if they was married would be happier because they couldn't be beat worse and if they was married they'd get a nice home about em whereas if they's only living together they takes a furnished room i'm sure too that it's a bad plan for i've heerd the girls themselves say ah oh, i wish i'd never seen jack or tom or whatever it is i'm sure i'd never be half so bad but for him only last night father was talking about religion we often talks about religion father has told me that god made the world and i've heerd him talk about the first man and woman as was made and lived it must be more than a hundred years ago but i don't like to speak on what i don't know father too has told me about our saviour what was nailed on a cross to suffer for such poor people as we is father has told us too about his giving a great many poor people a penny loaf and a bit of fish each which proves him to have been a very kind gentleman the ten commandments was made by him i've heerd say and he performed them too among other miracles this is this is part of what our saviour tells us we are to forgive everybody and do nobody no injury i don't think i could forgive an enemy if she injured me very much i'm sure i don't know why i couldn't unless it is that i'm poor and never learnt to do it if a gal stole my shawl and didn't return it back or give me the value on it i couldn't forgive her but if she told me she lost it off her back i shouldn't be so hard on her we poor girls ain't very religious but we are better than the men we all of us thanks god for everything even for a fine day as for sprats we always says they're god's blessing for the poor and thinks it hard of the lord mayor not to let em come in afore the ninth of november just because he wants to dine off them which he always do yes we knows for certain that they eats plenty of sprats at the lord mayor's blanket they say in the bible that the world was made in six days the beasts the birds the fish and all and sprats was among them in course there was only one house at that time as was made and that was the ark for adam and eve and their family it seems very wonderful indeed how all this world was done so quick i should have thought that england alone would have took double the time shouldn't you sir but then it says in the bible god almighty's a just and true god and in course time would be nothing to him when a good person is dying we says the lord has called upon him and he must go but i can't think what it means unless it is that an angel comes like when we're a-dreaming 
and tells the party he's wanted in heaven. I know where heaven is, it's above the clouds, and they're placed there to prevent us seeing into it. That's where all the good people go. But I'm afeard, she continued solemnly, there's very few costers among the angels, especially those as deceives poor gals. No, I don't think this world could well go on for ever. There's a great deal of ground in it, certainly, and it seems very strong at present. But they say there's to be a flood on the earth, and earthquakes, and that will destroy it. The earthquake ought to have took place some time ago, as people tells me, but I never heard any more about it. If we cheats in the streets, I know we shan't go to heaven, but it's very hard upon us, for if we didn't cheat, we couldn't live, profits is so bad. It's the same with the shops, and I suppose the young men there won't go to heaven neither. But if people won't give the money, both costers and tradesmen must cheat, and that's very hard. Why, look at apples. Customers want them for less than they cost us, and so we are forced to shove in bad times as well as good times. And if we're to suffer for that, it does seem to me dreadful cruel. Curious and extravagant as this statement may perhaps appear to the uninitiated, nevertheless it is here given as it was spoken, and it was spoken with an earnestness that proved the poor girl looked upon it as a subject, the solemnity of which forced her to be truthful. End of section 8